Welcome to The Truth in His Heart. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thanks for listening. And the truth in the art, the truth in this art is your source for conversations on arts and culture. So today I have the privilege of uh, speaking with the executive director of the Baltimore Community Toolbox, Noah Smock. Welcome to the podcast. Right on. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, for popping on and, and being a part of this series. And um, I won't be a tool. I'll just call it, I'll just say that as to start off. Thanks. Um, so so could you give us some of those details? I gave a very sparse introduction for you. Could you give us some of the details of your background? Because it's much weightier than the, you know, what I what I said previously. And tell us the story behind the Baltimore Community Toolbox, like the mission and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. So um the the Baltimore it's Baltimore Community Tool Bank. Um, Sorry. <laughs> all good. All good. We get that. And it, you know what? It, it, it definitely fits because uh, it is literally tools, equipment and expertise for community partners. Uh, so we started, we're actually celebrating 10 years of service, which we're doing all year long. We opened in June, uh, did our first order in June of 2012 here in Baltimore. And the origins are actually from uh, its national model and it comes out of Atlanta. And it's very, very organic. We had uh, a young man in the early 90s doing service projects for his neighbors, helping them age in place. And he was accumulating tools and uh, he had them in the trunk of his car. And then he got a few more and put them in the basement of a church and got a few more. And then people started to ask, can I borrow this? Can I borrow (laughs) that? And the bright light went off and he said, hey, Someone could do this full time just for the community sector, and it is its own thing. Um, so that's a very abbreviated version. But if you fast forward now, uh, so we were the second expansion site. So there was the home site in Atlanta. There was the Charlotte Tool Bank. We opened in 2012. A month later, uh, Cincinnati opened. And then pretty quickly thereafter, Richmond, Virginia, Houston, Texas, Phoenix. Uh, and now there's a, a tool bank starting in uh, the Windy City, uh, Chicago. Uh, it's called the Windy City Tool Bank. Um, and the concept is radical sharing. We operate under the philosophy of disrupting the cycle of community groups yeah. over paying for something we can source and share. And it is as simple as it sounds. And at the same time, it's so powerful. We have over 300 community groups use us annually, over a thousand orders. And it's, it's everything from uh, a domestic violence shelter repairing a door jam with one of our tools to a animal shelter doing a mobile adoption event using our tables and chairs to a playground build. And we're just so privileged to be able to see this kind of cross-section of beautiful Baltimore and regional culture uh, based on the partners that walk in our door. That's, that's great. It's definitely a uh, part of the community. And I think that's that's something that people don't talk about enough it's you know not everyone knows how to use things not everyone has access to things so being able to share something i, I have friends and i i look at them like hey i just bought a house i was like do you have a hammer do you have a toolbox do you have any of these things no where do i buy tools it's like what okay <laughs> right yeah and and it's i'm so glad that you said the enhancing access so the, that that the way that we do that is through tools. But if you think about it from a social justice lens, sure. who who lacks access to resources? What what are those communities? And then how how do we leverage resources for them? So in our case, it's super simple. 
but a tool, it's kind of like what you're saying as a homeowner, you don't care about tools until you don't have the one you need. And yeah. then all of a sudden you can't do this. You can't do that. And that's what we're supposed to leverage so that more community organizations can say yes to volunteers, to ambitious ideas and do more uh, in the community and, and thereby make it more resilient. So if you, if you will, within the, I guess, the culture here in Baltimore, we have this kind of DIY culture, right? How does, like, what do you find interesting about that culture? Like, uh, and with that, how do you feel that BCT fits within it? Yeah, so as a, as a citizen, um, you know, I absorb the DIY culture in Baltimore. Uh, I love it um, from, from an arts perspective. Uh, and I'm, I'm one of those constantly aspiring artists. I am not an artist myself by training um, or vocation, but uh, I can see that. I What I feel very, very fortunate to see from the community side, uh, and the tool bank is a huge part of this, when, when we have neighbors, um, so actually I'll, I'll walk through an example. So let's say you and I are neighbors, we live uh, in one of these awesome Baltimore neighborhoods, um, across us is a vacant uh, uh, lot, and we want to convert that to a community garden. You know, kind of the spirit in Baltimore of DIY is, hey, we can do that. Yeah. We can get together. We can get the time. We have the need. Uh, we we have an idea. Hey, we may even have uh, a little bit of skill in being gardeners. But if we have all of these things. But then we realize, oh, but we have to buy $2,500 worth of tools. <laughs> and Baltimore City, where are you going to store it? Where is it going to go you know, in your basement, in your kitchen? So the idea here is we could get together as neighbors, identify a community benefit, yeah. and actually move through all the steps because we have this awesome warehouse of resources at our disposal. And we, we don't have to own it. We don't have to build a shipping container or uh, store them in a container or build something. Um, you know, we can borrow and bring them back. If what we're doing has community benefit, then, then you can go through the tool bank and do that project. That's, that's great. And it really hammers home the point. God, that was so corny. That was so corny. It was there, but it was so corny that hammers home the point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was touching on a little bit earlier that your, your background is, is one that, at least from what I, from what I read, is, is service-oriented. I see that you're alum of Maricorps, um, that, uh, you know, South Baltimore Gateway Partnership. So, you know, board of directors there and Source, shout out to Hopkins um, for School of Public Health and um, Living, Cla Living Classrooms um, Foundation. And community feels like it's a theme there. So how would you, like, summarize your background in terms of, like, what's that through line for you? Because I don't, I don't want to tell your story obviously you know that's that's for you to do and um also you know with that with that through line when did you and how did you find that vocational calling yeah thank thank you for asking that because i i so i would summarize a lot of my career in service as right place right time with with a mixture of recognizing that i'm in the right place at the right time so I grew up in rural Ohio. I actually grew up in Baltimore, Ohio. So <laughs> nice. less so row homes, more so cornfields. Um, and I was itching to get out. So I signed up for this program called AmeriCorps, where young people, I had just graduated high school. You sign up. Uh, I was in a program called the National Civilian Community Corps. And I have to admit, I, I was not thinking service at the front of it. I mean, it did, it did not bother me, but my thought was I get to travel around in a team of young people like myself, and I get to see something outside of the small rural community that I grew up in. 
And that was kind of the seed of service because I spent 10 months in that program, traveled on the West Coast. I lived in San Diego. I lived in Oregon. I lived in Central California doing service projects. But that was also a way for me to earn a little bit of money for college. Um, I'm very proud to have gone to San Diego City College for my core classes so I could afford to go to uh, the University of California, San Diego. So I stayed out there for a little bit. But as I was doing that, I, w- I worked at the Marriott. I was working at a property in, um, in San Diego. And then I actually, when I moved to Baltimore, I transferred. And I, uh, at this point, I was 27 years old. And I realized, uh, as fun as it was working at a hotel, that was just kind of a job that I kept <laughs> moving up in. And I, I didn't make a real big choice about that. I, I wouldn't want a career in it. So I found myself a little bit stuck in, in that big question, kind of late, like, what, what do I want to do when I grow up? Um, but I had the fortune of coming across a community organization that I could see the work that they were doing. And, and I got uh, the benefit of uh, going on a tour there. Yeah. And I literally snapped that this is what I, this is the work that I wanted to do. And that's when, um, <laughs> so when I applied for and begged to get a job in a career I wasn't in, um, and I did start working for living classrooms in 2008. Yeah. But what's really cool is the, the way that that work tied me to the city of Baltimore and all of its beauty, complexity, um, need, but also strength, uh, really charted the, the path for me going from there. I, d- I did work at the um, Hopkins School of Public Health, working to uh, with health professional students to connect them to community groups. So then I met hundreds of community groups. And then I started volunteering. And then, you know, the, the list of things of, of places I volunteered or served on a board is just that kind of small to more thing, which is you say you're interested, you sign up, you show up, and all of a sudden, things are going really quick. So I was very, very lucky to get this role based on my work. Um, I was volunteering for an organization called the Sixth Branch mm-hmm. and uh, I was writing grants for them. It was an all volunteer board. So we were effectively staff. Um, and I, I was kind of the, the treasurer uh, or at least the, the person who cared about what money was coming in and what money was going out. And here was this brand new thing that had started in Baltimore called the Tool Bank. And what I knew at the time it had only been around for a year, but we were about the same age at this organization. And we simply couldn't have done what we did to that scale if we didn't have the tool bank. Yeah. Uh, so when they, when I, we heard that the executive director who just started it was leaving for another role, we joked that somebody's got to apply for this job and that, that somebody was me. <laughs> um, but it was kind of funny because it took me until the, my late 20s to kind of look around and realize, what is it I really want to be doing? What's going to sustain me? And, and this has been that career for me very much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and walking us through that. Because uh, I think when you get to that point, that the notion that you want to do something, you've had some experiences and like, okay, this would be a fit. Maybe this is a calling, but you have to, at least I think, be able to travel and kind of do certain things that maybe fulfilling certain aspects aren't, but aren't quite it. You know, it's like, it's like when you go out to a restaurant, and you're like, man, that was good. I'm still a little hungry. It's like that, but for your soul, I guess, or for what you want to do. And, you know, I didn't find that out really into um, into my, my, my later 20s, if not early 30s at this point. And I think even now I, I have to check back in with myself as to 
what is my reasoning for doing like this podcast for sake of argument? Or why do I do what I do for my day job and really being able to understand it? Because I think if you're not doing something that matters to you and is purely for the for the check for 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 sake, for the sake of argument, then you got to know that, you know, and I think a lot of people don't do that self inventory and do that check in because um, a lot of times we're not designed to do that. We're just designed to kind of just keep rolling. <laughs> Right. And in what a moment that we're in, I know this is happening with so many people across careers, but that exact moment, and, and it happens in different phases for different people, but when you look around and say, well, what, I know the treadmill that I'm on, but what, what is the thing that's going to actually make me feel great? And, and I'll give you, give you some props for this podcast because, um, so I, I had heard, so I, I was introduced to it through some, uh, someone that I knew, Brad Rogers, executive director of the South Baltimore Gateway Partnership. But then when I looked at your roster of truly, truly, you know, the Baltimore culture and in, in all of its places, community leaders, restaurant entrepreneurs, um, I actually learned quite a bit. And then I saw some familiar faces, too. So I'm like, yes, that's that's small. Tomorrow. So <laughs> doing what you're doing is very valuable and important and telling the story of this complex but awesomely beautiful city. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it, mean, it means a lot because. Uh, it's, you know, and really for me, it feels like it is service and it is um, documented. And there's so many different things that for me is baked into why I do this, but really always checking back into why I do it is, is important for me. So with, within your within your career, you know, it's, a, it's just a service, it's the focus oriented stuff. What would you say, well, service and focus oriented like work, what would you say, um, are some of the biggest lessons that you've you've learned whether whether it comes with like working in certain environments working here in baltimore working with um certain entities working with this diy community we have here with your work with the tool bank so so tell me about that some of those lessons that you've learned um because i would imagine there's a lot <laughs> yeah and I, I hopefully can anchor them with some um some examples too so I, I have a, a personal a thing I'd say to myself a lot. I didn't sit down and think of it as a motto, but if I were to come up with the thing that I tell myself the most, uh, it's no arrival, meaning whenever I feel like, oh, I've learned that, I know that, I, I feel like I just shut my mind and my heart off from learning something else. Yeah. Um, a, a really good example, I'll put it into a tool bank example, uh, so in other words, if I'm always not arriving, I'm always got to be paying attention, listening to something. Um, so when I first started at the tool bank, we, you know, who we serve are oftentimes people who have full-time jobs and they do a labor of love. Yeah. And, you know, it's a model that's national. So the, the kind of uh, the boxed idea was, you know, we operate during business hours. Uh, and I realized, well, I'm not sure that that's going to serve the people that we need to serve when if we extended hours twice a week or even took some Saturday hours, we could really alleviate so that everybody could access us. Um, and if that's the thing that we do, enhance access, we have to we have to bend to whoever we're serving. Yeah. And I think COVID was an incredible example of that. And I think this probably happened in every industry, but you know, we, we loan for a certain period of time and everything's on an appointment and a promise. So you promised us you'd bring these tools back so that we could on a Thursday, so we could say yes to someone on a Friday. And then if that doesn't happen, uh-oh, now we're 
now we're breaking promises to somebody else. So, so we try to be pretty straightforward with that and, and just help hope that everyone understands that that helps us serve other people. But I used to be pretty bent out of shape if, if you told me Thursday and it wasn't, you know, I didn't hear from you until Friday. Uh, but COVID's a great example because you cannot make an assumption as to what was happening to somebody that day, what they were dealing with. And I think that's kind of just a, an example of how, you know, taking that pause, listening and receiving what someone's telling you rather than making an assumption or rather than acting like you know it all. Yeah. That's probably my my biggest uh, lesson that I've learned is just kind of, you know, kind of check myself. Don't be so fiercely protective of our everything and, and listen to people uh, and, and no arriving, um, always learning. And, and I think that's also the social times that we're in. Uh, there's probably terminology I would have used 10 years ago that would now make me cringe because I am listening and learning new information and updating, you know, the way that I present in the world. Yeah, you're, you're moving to the the new Noah as we move. What we have to refresh It's almost like you get that new iPhone like downloads. Like, yeah, here's the new operating system. It's like, all right, here's the, the things I'm going to say now. This is how I'm going to go about this. Yeah, people do have lives. You know what I mean? Things happen. <laughs> I love that analogy because, yeah, you have to find your way. You, you can be clumsy with the new operating system. You, that used to be over here. Now it's over there. But you can develop the new muscle memory if uh, if you are open to it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> I, um, with it, in, in the role of an executive director, I, you know, be remiss if I didn't ask this. Tell me about your philosophy around like leadership. Like, how does that work? And I think it's a good segue to that, that previous question because I think that there is some correlation between those two. Yeah. Leadership at the tool bank is, is in a couple of ways. There's certainly from a staff perspective, which is a very interesting dynamic because we are staff of uh, four people. So, so super small. Um, from the leadership side in that regard, I think of uh, the key term of just adaptability um, without compromise. So, so not compromising the core of what we do or our values and yet being adaptable and trying to elicit the best and most most positive product. Uh, there should be some joy actually in what we do at the tool bank. So when I say that, I do actually mean that someone should be relatively happy coming to work for us every day. Um, now it gets a little hot in the warehouse or a little cold, whatever you don't want it to be. But uh, but even so, we, we do our work with some joy. And then leadership, um, it, it a couple of years ago, I kind of, tried to step into more thought leadership opportunities, which is difficult because I don't pretend that, uh, you know, I should be on a panel and be speaking with any kind of expertise on this or that. And at the same time, um, you know, I've, I've been a working professional in a community setting in Baltimore for almost 15 years. And there are definitely some, some things that I feel my experience could bring to bear and help other people understand. So it's kind of a delicate balance, but I really do lean into the idea that if, if sharing what the tool bank does or what I do can help other people have access to something greater, then I feel a responsibility to do that. Um, but it's also funny because I, I, I kind of, I feel like I learned from a lot of different settings and a lot of different, um, 
people who would never have known that they were teaching me something. Yeah. And yet I don't have like that one, I don't have a guru or, or a mentor necessarily, but more so just every, learning from everybody. Then um, I'm hoping to contribute to that as well. And if, if people can learn from me, um, you know, to, to lean into that and, and to share as, as candidly and honestly as possible. Do you, do you have any accomplishments that, you, you think that really resonates. I believe I saw a Baltimore homecoming. I saw a few kind of other like acknowledgements that were there from some of the great work that you've been doing. So is there anything that really like sticks out that you hold very near and dear? It's like, like this, like if someone's a musician, they're like, man, winning the Grammy means a lot because it's like your peers, you, you are getting acknowledged for what you're doing and things of that nature. Is there like something that really pops up like, yes, this is, this is important to me. And it's like, not necessarily validation, but it's just like, this is, this is a little, little, little spark for you. Yeah. Um, certainly the, the community awards are, are incredible. I'm always mindful. I know sometimes my name is on an award for like the Baltimore homecoming heroes. Um, I'm mindful that that comes directly from my work that I do, you know, with the tool bank, with the volunteer roles, but I would say the most proud um, are when I can actually join a board, which yeah. is funny in a couple ways because I'm I'm never join a board that's like, look at those superstar letterhead. It's it's always a working board, and I'm always like I'm basically proud that I get to volunteer more than <laughs> I signed up and volunteer like applied to volunteer, and they said yes. But um, but I'm super proud because if anything about my experience in this you know, really unique sector that yeah. so much of the world doesn't even think of as a sector um, can can come to bear and I can help with rudimentary things like the formation of the bylaws and, you know, the officer positions or how can we have a more dynamic structure and, and a less uh, static model of leadership. Um, so I, I would give a shout to the South Baltimore Gateway Partnership where fortunately I can be a board member without having to necessarily be the most visible leader because there's so many other incredible people I serve with, uh, but I can contribute. Uh, and then I just joined the national board of the, we're, we're still forming, but we're working as a committee as the um, National Civilian Community Corps, so NCCC, Alumni Advisory Committee. Uh, and that work has been fast and furious, but I'm also super proud to have been, you know, one of 15 people nationally that is, is serving on the very first board for that. How do you how do you manage your time? Because you're 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 doing you're you're volunteering, you're doing it. Like, is there and, and this is probably going to come up in rapid fire too. But is, are are there like ways that you're like, all right, I need to like block out, let's say five hours to do this. And there are certain things that's like, all right, I need to be there. Can I like double dip a little bit and maybe do this meeting from the office after this other meeting? Tell me tell me about like maybe some hacks or some tactics that you put in place to manage like the good work that you're doing to manage the time that's needed for it. Yeah, I think self-care is a huge piece of that, too. So I'm fortunate in the sense that I am very energized to show up to work on the daily because the work is different and I have diversity of work within the day. So I, I write grants, I can um, uh, take a break and fix a wheelbarrow. Like literally that, <laughs> that happened this week. <laughs> um, I can fill orders in the driveway and meet people yeah. and learn about their job. And then it actually fuels me when I sit down to write the grant. And I literally will put in there, I was just in the driveway talking to this partner 
Um, so there's diversity in the work, but also um, I do take days off. I do protect my time. And the funny part is I always, I always tell my partner, Stephanie, um, who is also a big reason of my, like, my, my downtime, I actually have to schedule that free time. Yes, I can have it, but if it don't put it on a schedule and protect it, that's when it can feel like, uh, you know, that we're, we're coming off the rails with all the commitments. Um, I'm also a firm believer in board tenures. <laughs> I want to, I want to know I'm going to give you four years and I'll see you. I'll put my time in and then I'll take a break. Um, and it also helps that I just love what I do and, um, my life situation, uh, you know, I, I don't have children. If, if I did, I would be doing soccer practice. I'd be doing all of that stuff. Um, so my life could take a slightly different focus, but I'm fortunate that I can dedicate a lot of that to, um, to my actual community work. Yeah. Um, kind of similar in that I've, uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, I thought was great. It's like the opportunity to volunteer more and I've uh, been invited and I'm on two boards currently and I'm like, Oh wow, these, these are meetings. And I'm a person that doesn't really like meetings and it's more so like this, like when I talk to someone, it's like, Oh, I have 10 interviews this week. And it's like, how did, how do you do that? And it's like, I love doing it. So it's it doesn't feel like it's work to me, but those kind of intermediary things, whether it's talking to someone for potential funding or sponsoring or maybe a pre-call to set up an interview at a later date. It's just like, can we get to the thing, the actual juicy thing? I don't want the I don't want to see how the sausage is made. I just want to get it made. And um, yeah, being protective of that time has been um, something I've gotten better with because I just would just go. And I took. um maybe two weeks off from like that normal recording schedule and normal for me is between eight and 15 interviews in a given week and <clears throat> having to really take the time it's like all right i need to look through these questions i need to refresh these things i need to do this research and i find that there's a cost that i i, I take in account as well when i take a time away from it because you know, it might feel like I'm dragging a little bit if I'm just doing it's like, okay, this is past his expiration date. But if I'm away from it too long, then it's like these first few interviews are going to suck when I come back. I'm not linked. I'm not linked into it. I hear that. And and my my board members will say, don't work on Saturdays. Don't work. And I said, look, if I go quietly into the tool bank on the Saturday, I can get more done in four hours to set myself up so I don't feel rusty on Monday. Um, and I do take Sunday off almost, almost every Sunday, unless there's some really big event. <laughs> uh, and, and I do think baseball, I love baseball. I love the Orioles. Uh, it keeps me sane. it's, it's a way to hang up, but still engage my brain, but not with any consequences. Oh yeah. We're going to be friends. I'm a huge Orioles guy. And, uh, it, it's one, I used to work for them actually. And it's one of the wow. things, uh, back in uh, undergrad, I worked as an event staff manager through undergrad. So that was, uh, Fun summers, hot summers, sweaty summers, uh, awesome. but uh, it, it was it was great, and um, yeah, it is for me. It's like that now is part of my process during the day. Like I try to, especially during baseball season, it's like all right, I'm done with the day job at about four. I got about two hours, maybe three, to try to get dinner, do a couple of interviews. Oh, uh oh, crack a bat. Let's get let's get to this. Where's my Oreo hat? You know. <laughs> Oh yeah. And, and Hey, eight game winning streak. Let's, let's see what happens in Chicago, but you yeah. can't take something away from this young team. It's 
they they fight and I, and I and that's what I love the most and um I think with it you know being a a a person that's watched for a long time there were some some really really rough years there but I don't think this is this is a segue attempt I don't think that they buried their failure I think they learned from their failure so with that, I, I listened um, recently to a TED Talk, um, and a key takeaway that I got from said TED Talk was not to bury our failures. Uh, we have to learn from them and grow. So is there a time that, that comes to mind that you like fail spectacularly, like this blew up my face? And with that, was there an important lesson that you learned from that, that you're like, I'm not going to make that mistake again, or I'm not going to do it the same way again? Yes, I, I was... The the one big, like massive thing that I was actually embarrassed about, it was at the tool bank. We had been hosting at regular intervals, um, uh, community networking events with our partners. So this, we call it two degrees of tool bank because we're kind of the common link, but we were, we met this partner and this partner and they really should meet each other. And then we get together and, and problem solve. So literally we ask people to come with your two most pressing problems you get floor time to speak them to the group and then we raise our hands if we think we have a lead or a solution for you and then it's open networking so if you saw someone raise their hands for your problems you go talk to them we had done that two or three times with high attendance high everything and then for whatever reason the fourth time we did it i had 45 people signed up representing over 30 groups and four people showed up (sighs) And this event, the power of this event is the people in the room. Yeah. And I thought, well, first off, I was just I like literally embarrassed. I had food for oh, 45 man. people because it was a nighttime event trying to get people in the door. And I really had to be honest and say, you know, this has got to be an absolute failure of like following up with people. Yeah, they signed up. But what didn't you do? And what came out of that, I, I honestly and plaintively emailed all the people and said, please be honest with me. You know, what was the reason? Yeah. Was it because you felt like um, the event would be fine without you? Was it, did I not send you a reminder on time? I just realized that I personal touches go a long way. And, and when I can reach out to someone and say, like if you were coming to this event, I say a couple of days before, and this is what we've done subsequently is, Hey, don't forget, it's really valuable that you're in this room. We want to bring all of Rob's gifts into the room and the event will be worse without you. So if you can't make it, we understand, but please let me know and I'll I'll invite somebody else. Um, So we just working a little bit harder to to curate and and have a personal touch um, that helped our next event. We had we had 60 people at the next event. proud to report but that was super embarrassing to have the caterers come in and be like where are all the people you're serving like where's all of this circle sub going like what are we doing with this (laughs) oh my goodness oh yeah yeah it's uh i've i've recently done some well not recently it's been each month since uh february with the exception of june i've done a movie screening series at motorhouse in baltimore and Sometimes um, you try to learn from each one to have some rhyme or reason on how to make the next one better. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, I don't know why no, no one's showing up or, can you know, it, is it the personal touch? Is it maybe I need to send out that last because 
people will, human behavior sometimes dictates that I don't know what I'm doing until an hour before it's going to happen. So sending out that last reminder and maybe the choice of movie, all of these different things can factor in and really trying to put time to and an energy towards it to, to find out what it is because you want it to be a successful event and the purpose is bringing people together. At least that's the purpose that I, I do it. And if people aren't together, then it's a failure. <laughs> and I, I'm so with you because I, I was angry. I was like, people are flakes. Everyone reserved the right to get this. And I thought, I need to stop. What, what could I have done better? And why are we doing it? If, if no one's here, they don't think it's valuable. And then you didn't message it right. But also, I'm very interested in what you just said, because I'm going to check that out, because I'm a big film buff, too. So, uh, so maybe you get one extra person at the next <laughs> one anyway. Um, but it's so true. And I think, you know, the human reaction is to also be like, I sent this out. I did this. I did that. Everyone knows working really hard over here, but um, it has to be relevant to people. So, yeah, a little humility. And and with it kind of tying into uh, and this and this is kind of just before we get to the rapid fire ones tying into one of the earlier themes. Sometimes it has to just be the right time, right place. You know, hit that email at the right time. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not doing anything right now, and I'm right around the corner. Let me just go. Yes. Yes. All right. So here's some rapid fire questions for you. These are quick. They're nothing that's that's too out of the ordinary. But one is one I'm very interested in because um, I've been working this new one in. We're gonna see how it works. Um, so I'm going to start off with, uh, this one. So I had a goal of, uh, traveling to Japan to try sushi, purely to try sushi. I heard that Questlove did that one year and he and I have the same birthday. So that's the thing for me. What is the furthest you've traveled for, for something? It could be food. It could be something mundane. Like, look, man, I want there to get donuts and I want to Tennessee for a donut. What was something that you've traveled really far for that seems kind of like mundane or a little, but you'd enjoyed it, but it was a little like, all right, was that really best use of my time? Boy, that's a great question. And boy, I, that, that one's kind of stumping me. I, I, I traveled to Korea for my brother, but my brother's not mundane. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, um, boy, I, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of, tra I haven't done a lot of traveling, but I know what I get the spirit of the question too. Yeah, it could yeah. be traveling across town for something. Um, I've done that as well, where I, um, I remember it was one, at one point me and my partner, my, my, my girlfriend, we went up to Pennsylvania to try to re went up to Philadelphia exactly to try to recreate this experience. We had, we went to this rooftop hotel. We stumbled upon Frosé for the first time. So a year later we went back for that same purpose only to go up there for Frosé. So we traveled to Pennsylvania for Frosé. Okay. I get, to, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, we, so when I lived in San Diego, I was 19 when I moved out there and I had never been West of Missouri. So I was, I was very, everything was awesome and brand new. Yeah. Um, and at, at one point in this program I was in, they, they gathered us at mission beach uh, and I had a great time with my team and everything. And a couple of years later, I went back with the teammate to try to build a, we, we were on the beach building like sand castles of something. Yeah. And but it was just the two of us and we were trying to do it. And I'm like, all, uh, things just look a little bit different. Everything was a little bit cheap. Everything was like a little bit more miserable. The magic wasn't there. So, so maybe that fits the bill. But like, yeah, try, trying to recreate something that uh, 
was cool because it was the moment, not yeah. because it was independent. <laughs> it's, it still goes back to thing like time and place. That's that's the thing. You know, it's like um, once it shifts and, and, and you're, you're right, that, that second time the froze wasn't as good. It wasn't the, the, the crystalline ice wasn't what I recall. My taste buds were not like popping. Um, tell us about the what was the last movie you watched? Movie buff. The last movie I watched was OK. So, well, I've been watching. Um, I'm a big Criterion Channel fan. So I've been watching film noir and I'm kind of going through Billy Wilder movies. Okay. Uh, so, you know, mixed reviews but I, I do like some film noir so i just watched five graves to uh cairo five graves to cairo i couldn't remember the name of the city but yeah billy billy wilder movie 1943 like world war ii stuff wow i mean i like hearing criterion you know it's like that's that's what my partner she's like i'm doing a deep dive i'm going through it i, I came over one day i was like what is, what are these 70 sideburns he's like oh this is robert red for all the kings but it's fine I was like, is it? <laughs> I don't, oh, you go down some rabbit holes. I, I, told, I was like, I don't watch anything before 1985. I have a rule. It's like, look, if this came out and there were sideburns in it, I'm probably not going to watch it. Unless it's, <laughs> if it's not Bruce Lee, I don't care. Um, <clears throat> uh, do you have any birthday traditions? Like, I go to New Orleans for my birthday. That is a thing that I do like every year. Um, I, it speaks to me. It's I think it's a sister city to Baltimore, and I think it's a portal to weirdness. And so it's part of my birthday tradition. Do you have any birthday traditions? Well, so my partner and I are kind of doing like, uh, okay, so here's our birthday tradition. No stuff. If you're going to buy something, make it an alcohol or experience. <laughs> because those are the things that we will actually do and remember. Uh, maybe not the alcohol. But um, so on that note, actually, uh, New Orleans was the last trip that we did for her birthday. I'd never been. Uh, we did that right before we did that in December 2019. So okay. when we didn't know traveling was going to be hard to do for a while, um, but really it's 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 identifying time and space that we can be together. Yeah, uh, and we're kind of introverts. It's kind of usually just the two of us, but yeah, yeah. occasionally a friend will pop in here and there. Yeah. Um, it, so the last time we went was 2019. My, my birthday's in January, and uh, she had never been before. So we go down there and. All of the things that I've joked about of why I like it so much, she was like, it's exactly how you described it. I was like, yes, it's this is a cartoon city and I love it. We had an awesome, incredible experience. Yes. This is the last one I got for you. Um, you can, if you have all of them, fantastic. Well, two of them, but let's put it this way. What is the either last piece of music you've listened to or the last podcast that you've listened to? Um, that's, that's something of interest as well, you know, a little shameless, but it's of something of interest. What's the last thing that you've listened to? Yeah. Um, so let me see on, on the listening, I have like heavy rotation things, but, um, the last thing, according to my, uh, Spotify, uh, was the album, uh, crushing by Julia Jacqueline. Okay. Um, which was just kind of a slow burn for me. Uh, I would say heavy, heavy rotation. Uh, I definitely, uh, I, I love the national and I love Radiohead and the, their new project uh, is called the smile. So I'm, I'm, I'm digging that album a lot. And then podcast. Uh, well, podcast is interesting because I used to do a lot of true crime, yeah. but I really had a moment of like, 
what kind of voyeurism is this? Like, <laughs> right. what is this? Maybe that was my, like, you know, my chill time was listening to true crime podcast, but, but it was, it was a way for me to be intrigued without having to be the author of some kind of a solution. Yeah. But then I got a little turned off because I, I just felt like, well, I was listening to more contemporary stuff. Yeah. Like, well, you're kind of just describing a thing that happened, but, you know, what, what, what is with my, my interest in this? Though I'm not knocking any true crime fans yeah. because I've been one. But, um, but yeah, so podcast, I, I've chilled a little bit on podcasts. I do tend to listen to a lot of kind of culture-based podcasts. So I will give a shout out to The Truth in This Art. Shout out to you. Um, <laughs> and a, a lot of WYPR. So if I miss something, I might go back and, and podcast that. That's fantastic. Um, I've I've been in this loop. It's my music taste is all over the place. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Europe recently. Final Countdown album. And then what is it? Jan Hammer. He did like this, the sound, like the score of all of like Miami Vice. <laughs> and wow. yeah. This is this is what I'm doing these days, and uh, today I've been listening to uh, the soundtrack for an old John Claude Van Damme movie called Bloodsport, I believe. Is he the Bloodsport oh, or Kickboxer? And um, yeah, I don't know. I was it was just like it just kept being on loop when I was in the gym, and I was like, oh yeah, this is this is great. This is fire. Let's do it. That's incredible. Those are some deep cuts. I I remember Bloodsport. I don't remember <laughs> the soundtrack. I do admit, but yeah, it's, uh, I think they had this uh, had the song called Fight to Survive. It's ridiculous. Uh, so there you have it. Um, I want to thank you for being on this podcast and, um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out and more about the Baltimore community tool bank. Absolutely. So, so certainly our website, baltimoretoolbank.org. Uh, you can catch us on a lot of Instagram, kind of what's happening daily, weekly is, is going to be populated there. Um, a little bit of Facebook, but I think like most people were kind of migrating away from it. Um, and we have, you know, celebrating 10 years. So we're trying to hit the theme of just celebrating service and um, those that we serve. And we have a big old fundraiser coming up called Hammers and Nails on October 15th. If you go to that website, you can find all the, the links for tickets and all that good stuff. But it, it really helps us a lot get unrestricted funds for the very thing that we do, which is um, helping other community organizations. So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Noah Smock from the Baltimore Community Tool Bank for coming on to the podcast. And I'm saying there is service and community in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it.